Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that the Industrial Revolution changed more than 10,000 years of human grain consumption. Uh, in the eight, 1870s, we invented the modern steel roller mill, which completely changed how we milled grain. Compared to the old stone methods, it was really fast and efficient. It gave you really fine control over different parts of the kernel. So instead of just mashing it all together, you could separate the parts, allowing the purest and finest of white flour to come out at a very low cost. And that meant that people with almost the very lowest levels of income could still afford the fancy flour. And the good thing about white flour is, well, it ships better, stores better, allows for a long distribution chain. In fact, you could keep it almost forever because it seems like nothing wants to eat it except for humans. And we now know that it's because it was stripped of nutrients and pets, pest problems were less of an issue because, well, bugs and rodents didn't want to eat it. Uh, the problem was that, well, grains, even if they're not treated that way, are not particularly good for humans because before the Industrial Revolution, we had the Agricultural Revolution, which is when humans dropped Oh, a foot in height in some places, and we started getting cavities and other degenerative diseases we didn't have before. And there's really good science to help explain why that happened. And so, yeah, pizza and croissants taste good. Doesn't mean you need to make them out of grains. There are other ways to do it. And if you want to continue eating those things, well, to put it really bluntly, you'll probably die sooner from something painful than if you choose not to do that, and you'll probably not like the quality of your life as much as you would if you made better choices. I wish it wasn't so. Uh, however, that's what the science that I'm aware of says, both from my own extensive research and self-experimenting, and from having the opportunity to interview some of the world's smartest and best and uh, uh, most impactful people out there on Bulletproof Radio. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. 
Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. And I'm really pleased to have a, a dear friend, a, just a fantastic human being, a guy with a crazy amount of education and experience across different fields of medicine, a famous author, and someone who I featured in Game Changers on the show again. I'm talking about none other than Dr. David Perlmutter, author of Grain Brain. I think you're also the author of four other New York Times bestsellers and a practicing neurologist and, well, just an overall fantastic guy. David, welcome to the show, man. That's the best best I could do for you, but it still wasn't oh, adequate. Oh my gosh, it's, it's an honor. And, you know, your listeners need to know that right back at you, uh, we both do podcasts, we both interview a lot of people, but, you know, you and I have had the just the great fortune of taking it a step further and spending uh, some really quality time together, uh, family time together. And it really has been very, very meaningful for, uh, for us, that's for sure. Uh, well, it's, it's inspiring for me. And, and I'm going way off what I was planning to talk about. But when I first got going on, on Bulletproof and Bulletproof Radio and all, you see these authors kind of up in the clouds. You know, they, they write these books and you read these books and, and you're sort of, sort of like, what kind of people are they, right? And then eventually with uh, with the work that I'm doing, I got a chance to meet you. And, you know, there are a lot of people who don't have to write books and they write books because they've studied this for many years and because they think it matters and they just go around generally doing good work and helping people with a, an attitude that's amazing. Uh, and I... Uh, you're you're one of the probably the most giving guys I've, I've met. Just every time, every time I've seen you interact with someone, whoever they are, you're just like, how do, how can I help? So that's something that's hard to hard to see if you you read your books uh, or if you know just look at you from afar. But just having having gotten to know you, this is a hallmark of people who succeed really well, and um, it's one of the things that came out from looking at what 500 people do. It, it's the the people who learn how to be happy tend to be more successful and. Everything I know about you says that you you figured out how to do that, and that that's powered some of what you do. True statement. Um, yeah, I mean, I I am eternally grateful every moment of my life for just the the life that I've had the opportunity to to live so far. I mean, uh, the family that I have been gifted, the people I've gotten to know, uh, I. Maybe it's, you know, uh, rose-colored glasses. I, I see things as being just extremely positive. I am a realist. I see what's going on around us. But, um, you know, I have complete faith in, in us uh, as a species and in our ability to do the right things and move things in the right direction despite uh, temporary setbacks. And I think it is more along the lines of of being a an investor and not a trader. You know, I'm looking at, at where we're going in the long run, and I think the slope is exactly where we need it to be. Are there setbacks along the way? You bet there are. But uh, this is looking at the climate as opposed to looking at the day-to-day -day weather. And we know and that's not necessarily a positive uh, thing or not necessarily the best metaphor, but it, again, just speaks to the long view that I take uh, in a very positive way. And I've always said uh, that uh, today is the best day of my life. The reason being is that it builds on yesterday. And yesterday until today was the best day of my life. And th the good things are cumulative. The bad things do not enter into that equation. So therefore, today has to be the best day of your life. If one tiny thing 
was good. That happened. Then it moves the ball a little bit further. So that's the attitude I take. Well, it, it, it shows. And part of the reason that, that I put all the, it's about 8,000 hours <laughs> into, into Game Changers was to, to understand you know, the, the mindset is one of the many things that, uh, that people who've had a big impact do. And when I say you've had a big impact, you've won the Linus Pauling Award for treating neurological disorders in a new way. Uh, I mean, you've spoken at the World Bank. You're now the uh, an author as a top expert in the field of the emerging science of microbiome and the brain. And uh, just kind of the, this amazing list of, of accomplishments throughout your career in diverse fields, which are uh, are profound. And one of them is your book, Grain Brain, really helped people see that it's not just a bunch of uh, cavemen uh, or uh, or hippies saying don't eat uh, don't eat grain. And I have no problem with cavemen or hippies or cavemen hippies for that matter. <laughs> but if you want to get people who you know aren't doing doing lots of research to make a change, uh, well, here I'm a highly credentialed neurologist, and here's the hard science, and it's accessible. So Grain Brain really helped to change the conversation to make it normal to go to a restaurant and say uh, don't put gluten in that, and they actually know what gluten is. But you just rewrote the entire book five years after it came out from from the ground we up. We did. We we really did. And it was um it was as much effort as went into the first book. But I, I will tell you with uh there this time around, uh there was so much enthusiasm in the project, I think that was engendered because of the uh degree and level of science that has come in the past five years that has been so supportive and validating of our original uh, very much disruptive contention so you know we were at, we were talking about uh, gluten and sugar and carbohydrates as being toxins with reference to the brain at a time uh, this was long ago this is ancient history five years ago when uh, there was plenty of pushback though the the science at that time was burgeoning uh, you know, the original book was written based mostly, no, I'd say, uh, to significant degree, what brought it about, at least, was clinical experience in dealing with patients, then finding the supportive science. But as you well know, in the past five years, the uh, science surrounding lower carbohydrate, dare I say, even to the keto extent of ketogenesis, uh, as well as the f more recent science on gluten and non-celiac gluten sensitivity, we'll talk about that, has really been so extensive, so validating. And so um, it's it's great to have now gotten so much support. And, uh, you know, this book, Grain Brain, has been translated into uh, 34 languages uh, around the world. It was, you know, I, I saw one of my books this morning. Somebody sent me a an Instagram picture of it on a TV show in Turkey. And it's just, you know, these are people I will never see, never personally experience as a clinician, but yet to think that somebody on the other side of the world is going to get a simple message, and that is that, hey, this aberrant diet that we feel is appropriate for humans, a diet quite unlike anything we've experienced in 99.6% of our time walking this planet uh, you know, to, that we really need to consider that this is a threat directly in terms of the provision of mac macronutrients like carbohydrates directly threatening to our health and also secondarily threatening to our health in that this is a diet that's sending really bad signals to our genome, which then expresses 
genes that enhance inflammation, that degrade our antioxidant quenching ability, that compromise our ability to detoxify the very toxins that are now part of our environment when we desperately need to amp up our detoxification system. So I think the one experiment, the one research project I think that really I leverage the most in terms of validating these recommendations is a study that's been going on for two million years. (laughs) It is called the human being. And it's demonstrated that you bet a diet lower in carbs, higher in healthful fat, a diet that gives us lots of good nutrient fiber uh, has kept us going for two million years. And suddenly, what did we learn uh, in the past few uh, days? We learned that for the first time, at least in recent history, that life expectancy for men and women in the United States has not only plateaued, but has now begun to decline. We haven't changed genetically. We certainly have changed the epigenetic signaling that we are now engaged uh, with. So uh, now more than ever, I think we've got this robust data that says, take a, uh, suddenly take a deep breath. What has changed and what can we do to make it right? It's interesting that you talk about carbohydrates uh, because in in Game Changers, where I, I summarize all this knowledge, one of the 46 laws of, of high performance is feed the little bastards in your gut. And you're one of several experts I cite in that. Like This is what the people who are performing really well actually do. And, and I wrote the law, it says the bacteria in your gut control a lot more than you might imagine. They have the power to make you fat, tired, and slow, to give you extra energy to tap into new power, or even to make you depressed. They're in the driver's seat, and if you treat them poorly, your performance will suffer. When you treat them well, they serve you. Learn how to make them do your bidding. But they eat, at least primarily, carbohydrates in the form of fiber. Correct. Because fiber is a carb. And I'm a little concerned. I, I, I've seen, I've even experimented with something very close to the carnivore diet, where people are eating only meat. Or you get what I, I would like to call the, the keto bros, where, well, if it's not a carb, I'll just eat it. So I'm having pork rinds, bacon, and you know that's it for the rest of my life. And is there some carbohydrate confusion? Oh, without a doubt. Walk me through that. Yeah, I'd be delighted to. And uh, it's, I think that uh, I'd like your listeners to really tune in because I think of, I don't know where we're going later in our, our time together, but this is very important. Yeah. And indeed, it is carbohydrate confusion because we desperately, desperately need carbs. Uh, so many people adopt a ketogenic program and totally abandon their carbohydrate intake. And yeah. what happens? They feel crappy. They become constipated. They get uh, brain fog. They don't sleep well. They're agitated. And it's all because they fail to understand that uh, we have to be quite specific when we talk about carbohydrates, that we are desperately in need of, of fiber in the diet, which is by definition a complex carbohydrate that we don't metabolize but is yet metabolized by our gut bacteria. When we throw that baby out with the bathwater, we set the stage for not nurturing what you mentioned, these 100 billion organisms that live within us uh, that really depend on your food choices, 100 trillion, depend on your food choices to nurture them, to allow you to not just be healthy but 
be healthier, to be able to combat risk of, of illness moving forward. And in other words, preventive programs. So uh, if you want to make it more simple, then perhaps if you talk about the notion of net carbohydrates, which is fiber minus these simple carbohydrates and minus uh, uh, sugar alcohols, for example. So we want to, to uh, understand that we do need fiber. We've eaten fiber, in, and, and in fact, uh, looking back at our ancestors, they ate a heck of a lot of fiber, as much as 100 to 120 grams of fiber a day, and had many bowel movements a day and nurtured their gut bacteria. So it's a huge uh, mistake, and if that helps to unwind or unpack this notion of carbohydrate confusion, I'm, I'm really happy because, again, we want people to eat uh, a lot of good fat, a lot of good fiber, not a lot of uh, uh, protein. You know, in fact, this recommendation that we're making is absolutely not an Atkins redux. We don't want you sucking down pork rinds and uh, meat mm -hmm. all day long. I mean, the the China study, Dr. Campbell, you know, drew a correlation between. Uh, red meat consumption and risk for uh, colorectal cancer. And as a matter of fact, does Dr. Perlmutter agree with that? You bet I do. Why? Because first of all, there are some downsides of taking in too much uh, protein with reference to certain uh, biochemical pathways, uh, activation of mTOR, for example, ultimately leading You're talking to about too much cysteine, too much methionine, the amino acids that come from eating too much protein? Exactly like right. Cause aging, basically, right. Correct. And uh, turn on uh, cell signaling pathways that are disruptive. But uh, beyond that, the, the data that is utilized for these studies uh, involves uh, dietary analysis with a question on the dietary uh, questionnaire asking simply, how often do you eat red meat? How much red meat do you eat? So that they're ultimately able to categorize people into eating high amounts of red meat versus low. Now, red meat, by and large, is a, a, a the, one of the most dangerous foods on the planet. Uh, and by that, I mean the factory farmed red meat that typifies the type of red meat that people generally consume. Uh, if you're consuming a food uh, that uh, comes from an animal that's been antibiotic exposed, that's been fed glyphosate-rich uh, uh, grains uh, and has been uh, stressed throughout its existence, you're gonna, there's no alchemy that occurs here. You're going to create a food product that is absolutely threatening to your health. On the other hand, if you um, choose to be omnivorous and, cho and choose to eat some red meat on occasion, then it must be uh, grass-fed uh, beef, or other type of meat, uh, you know, really uh, emulating how these animals did live uh, prior to this industrialization of our food supply. So uh, by and large, though, I would indicate that uh, the more plant-based is your diet, the better off you will be. If you choose to have a, a garnish of red meat, then uh, it should fulfill the criteria I just uh, proposed. Uh, wild fish uh, as well. Uh, some free-range chicken. Um, eggs, I think, are <laughs> a really handy food and a really- but Those don't sound plant-based, though. Like, no, they're it, not. It kinda, I'm just saying. It, it scares me when people say the more plant-based you are because that drives you to become a vegan. And I, I, I can tell you, I, I know very few long-term vegans who are, are even average health. I mean, it, it's, it, it's exceptionally rare. I mean, so that was that a plug for veganism? 
No, not at all. I said if yeah. you, uh, I said by and large the diet should be plant based, and, yeah, and again, most mostly plants. But it doesn't mean all plant based. It's, it's that nuance where I think people get stuck. Absolutely. And by the way, I'm in I'm in alignment with you here. If I think red meat uh, it can be great for you, you eat a couple ounces of it. You don't. You never eat industrial meat. It never has antibiotics in it. Uh, and if you do that and you take care of your gut bacteria, you don't have the gut bacteria that make TMAO, right. which is a compound that causes the, all of the risk factors, at least most of them, I would say, um, from these studies of red meat. And I've had my gut bacteria tested. Guess what? I don't have anything that makes TMAO because I don't eat antibiotic tainted meat. So uh, th- there's it, there's nuances. There's also what kind of, of cut? Are you doing collagen from red meat, which has a different effect because it doesn't have all these amino acids? So it, it's such a complex thing, but uh, I just want to make sure that 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 unless you were meaning to do it, that people didn't say, "Oh, if, if some if mostly plant based is good, therefore only plant based is better." That hasn't been my experience. I am I am so glad that you that you're you know you're holding my feet to the okay. fire on this because uh, we don't want people to get the wrong idea. I, and I would agree with you that by and large, without certain important uh, caveats, that. Um, you know, people, uh, vegans uh, can get into trouble with low uh, levels of certain things, vitamin D, vitamin B12, uh, even, uh, you know, not getting adequate levels of dietary fat. Yeah. Uh, who knew? I mean, who knew this was going to be a, an area of actual importance? And uh, that said, you know, overdoing the meat side of this equation of, uh, at multiple levels, not just the antibiotics, but as you well mentioned, uh, the conversion of TMA into TMAO when a diet is rich in choline and carnitine. Uh, we, we see even higher levels of uh, trimethylamine oxide, TMAO, even in the spinal fluid. So this becomes not just a cardiovascular event increasing uh, inflammatory changes within the uh, coronary arteries, but it becomes an event with reference to the brain as well. So, you know, there are multiple levels upon which we can discuss uh, these dietary uh, nuances uh, directly in terms of the macronutrients and micronutrients. But the second order, which really I think should probably be the first order, would be how these things are viewed through the lens of the gut organisms. And there are uh, so many things to consider. I mean, uh, I mentioned detoxification earlier that, you know, our front line of detox uh, is the detox that happens um, as one of the tasks that our gut bacteria lovingly do for us day in and day out, which we certainly need uh, these days in our very toxic world. We know that these gut bacteria are producing various metabolic products, uh, the short chain fatty acids that have effects throughout the body and even uh, vitamins, some of the B vitamins. We're learning from my perspective as a brain specialist that the gut bacteria actually are playing a role in the production of this really important chemical called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. We'll probably touch on that later, but important for making connections in your brain. We call that neuroplasticity for growing new brain cells, which I still am not over. I I still, (laughs) it takes my breath away from the old school where I came that we didn't believe that could happen. So, um, you know, there there are many things, uh, not the least of which, uh, and perhaps certainly towards the top of the list would be the very important role that our gut bacteria are playing in uh, affecting the set point of inflammation in the human body. They do so 
uh, in that they are in charge of maintaining the uh, the gut lining where we want to have a gut lining that is patent or intact or has integrity. When dietary issues, uh, um, food issues, toxic issues, etc., threaten the integrity of our gut lining, we enhance through some mechanisms that we may or may not have time to talk about. We enhance inflammation in the body. Why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because we correlate higher levels of things that we measure that relate to inflammation with just about every chronic bad thing that you don't want to have, whether it's coronary artery disease or it's Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. Uh, yes, the truth of the matter is uh, there are higher markers of inflammatory mediators in the bodies of autistic uh, individuals. Uh, certainly uh, diabetes is inflammatory and even cancer. So our main mission here is to keep uh, inflammation uh, at bay. And that is what happens when we are good uh, to our gut bacteria. And I, I think it's really... Um, interesting to consider a study uh, that was published in the highly respected journal Neurology back in 2017. That is uh, the journal that's put out by the board that says you're a board-certified neurologist. It's really the go-to neurology journal. And it was an interesting study that looked at 1,600 individuals and evaluated these people many years ago in their 30s and in their 40s and did some blood work on them measuring markers of inflammation. And these were inflammatory markers back then, which we don't really use these days, but uh, fibrinogen count, von Willebrand's factor, if anybody's interested, total white blood cell count. We use different ones today, C-reactive protein, uh, TNF-alpha, but anyway. By the way, those are in the Bulletproof Diet. Those are in Headstrong. Those are the core lab <laughs> tests for inflammation because it doesn't matter where you're getting the inflammation. If you got it, you got to fix it, and then you start solving it. You bet. So anyway, thanks for repeating those. those sure, sure. I'd love to tell you those in every show. But here is what this amazing study revealed. So- they look at this group of 1,600 people in their 30s and their 40s, and they follow them for 24 years, this ongoing study. You know, the researchers dedicated and probably passed the torch a couple times. 24 years later, there is a perfect correlation between the level 24 years ago of these inflammatory markers and decline in brain volume and even uh, episodic memory today. In other words, they look at a group of people tw uh, 24 years ago, those who had the highest level, these inflammatory markers in their 30s and their 40s, today have the worst memory and shrunken brains. The point is, A, it, it really correlates uh, the importance of inflammation as a mechanism, but B, it also reinforces the notion that We've got to pay attention to these recommendations and ideas long before we are threatened or seemingly threatened by them. You know, as a neurologist, I deal with people who begin to have memory issues and they're 60, they're 70, and, and in their 80s. And by then, uh, you know, this is a process that's been going on for three or four decades. So the, the message here, the take-home message, and in fact, I did talk about this at the World Bank, is that we've got to target younger and younger audiences in terms of the, the long-term message to keep your brain healthy. Alzheimer's is a, is a dialogue that happens between doctors and individuals once it started raining. 
And uh, John Kennedy, why I use the metaphor, is he told us in his inaugural address that the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining. So now that makes sense. So I'm not going to say it's in your 30s and 40s, you need to start paying attention to this. I'm going to say it's in your adolescence when we're now seeing massive increases in type 2 diabetes and obesity and overweight. I'm going to say it's in childhood. I'm even going to go even a step further saying that it is during pregnancy that choices a mother makes will have outcome (laughs) markers uh, in terms of that adult. How do I uh, come to say that? I will say that based upon our understanding, for example, that Women taking uh, certain medications like proton pump inhibitors and antibiotics have a significantly increased risk of having a child who will then go on to develop issues related to immune function like type 1 diabetes and even obesity. Therefore, what mother does during pregnancy has a a role to play in the risk of her uh, son or daughter ultimately developing Alzheimer's disease. And it's real. I know, We're now learning. A, 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 I just love it that you said that. My very first book was "What Do You Do Before and During Pregnancy to Have the Healthiest, Smartest Child Possible?" Because it, it, that's exactly it. What even your grandmother ate has a huge impact. So this is multi generational. Uh, but I, I wanted to ask you a question there. If you're listening to this and you're saying, "Well, you know, I'm 20 and I'm inflamed right now, and 24 years later, I'm going to have a high risk of all this stuff," it it appears we can either fully or almost fully mitigate the the problems of having inflammation when you're young as long as you undo the inflammation. Because that's been my own experience. My hippocampal volume is in the 86th, 87th percentile for people my age. So my brain didn't shrink even though I was 300 pounds and screwed up and ate all the wrong stuff and had inflammation everywhere you can probably have inflammation. And uh, I, I, I keep it under control really dramatically and my brain works better now than it did in my 20s. But do you think I'm still going to pay the cost of, we'll say, those years of hard living for the first quarter century of my life? Well, I think that there uh, is a debt, and I think that uh, you've probably paid the debt back and and then some. So I think you've put money back in the bank based upon the things that I know you're doing now. So uh, I, I think you've undone the damage, and you're ahead of the game. I, you've demonstrated that through your... A voxel imagery of your hippocampus, as you just uh, mentioned. Uh, but the, those people who do not do the work have great risk. And I'll, and I'll give you yeah. another... Uh, there you go. So I hope you feel better. Well, uh, also, I, just, I don't want people listening, but you can start, you can change it. And I, I was in, I, I was the worst example, I think, of what you could get because I of the pre-diabetes, the high risk of stroke and heart attack, the high inflammation markers across a whole bunch of different things. Uh, pretty much everything bad on the list of aging other than maybe cancer. Uh, I didn't have Alzheimer's, but I had cognitive dysfunction, but just just a really, really not an autoimmune stuff. So if I can get to where I am, you probably weren't as far down the hole as I was, so it should take you less work than it did me. But if you do the work, you can get yourself to where you're actually younger than than you were before, which is kind of cool. Well, I mean, you just came back from an anti-aging conference, and that's exactly what we're talking about right now. And we are talking about reversing this stuff, reversing these declines, which, with reference to the brain, we never uh, were schooled in. We never thought the brain had a second chance. And that was the, the fundamental premise of grain brain, that you do get a second chance through this gift of neurogenesis and neuroplasticity. And we spent so much time in the book talking about what you can do to enhance that process. But 
you know, you mentioned years ago that you had uh, a lot of uh, extra body fat. And uh, I, I think it's very instructive to talk about a study that was published way back in 2008, Ancient History, again in the journal Neurology, where they looked at a group of individuals, uh, and this was a much larger, it was 6,580 something, 83 individuals. And similarly, they looked at these people at the beginning of the study and then said, check you later. Well, we're going to see you uh, in many years. And they actually checked back with these people 34 years later. And uh, 34, 36 years later. The only study they did at the beginning of the, of the uh, research was they measured their sagittal abdominal diameter. Basically, how big is your belly, right? They took a group of individuals, close to 7,000 people. How big is your belly? Check you later. They checked back with these people 36 years later, and they wow. found a perfect correlation between the size of your belly three plus decades ago and risk for dementia in comparing those who had the largest sagittal abdominal diameter, biggest belly, versus those who had the smallest diameter, the risk for dementia was increased threefold. A threefold increased risk of dementia simply related to making the choice to having a bigger belly. It is not a cosmetic issue anymore that you got a big belly. And yet we tend in media to be normalizing this notion that being fat is okay. You know what? If you don't care what you look like, that's not what we're talking about. I'm going to ask you, do you care if you're at risk for dementia in, in 30 years? And maybe people don't care about that because they're placing their hope on the idea that there's a wonderful treatment for Alzheimer's. And I would tell you that there is no such treatment. There is zero treatment for Alzheimer's. There is no drug, Dave Asprey, as you and I have this conversation right now, that has any meaningful effect on that disease. And I want to take this a little bit further. Last month, the Journal of the American Medical Association published a meta-analysis, meaning a review of other studies, by a researcher by the name of Richard Kennedy. And his research looked at probably the best 10 studies that looked at the two major classes of so-called Alzheimer's drugs, the cholinesterase inhibitors, drugs like Aricept, and another uh, drug called Memantine, marketed as the drug mm -hmm. Nemenda. And what he found was, not only do these drugs not work, but as published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, those people taking these Alzheimer's drugs actually declined much more quickly in terms of their cognitive function. I want to tell you right now, I, 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 can, barely, I can barely talk about that with you because think about the literally millions, there are 5.4 million Alzheimer's patients in America, the millions of these individuals who are taking these drugs and whose families put their faith in these drugs because their doctor wrote the prescription, and these drugs are actually making them worse. It'd be like giving somebody a blood pressure pill that raises their blood pressure or a treatment of diabetes where your blood sugar goes up. And you, or or a, a diet soda that makes you obese. Well, that's... It seems like a business model that works. Yeah, but why, why evil. was this not on the front page of the New York Times? Or why didn't NBC News, CBS, ABC cover this, CNN? 
<laughs> this was published and put out by the American Medical Association that, that the very drugs that are being given to these people, when I say given, they're being sold to these people. Uh, financially, it's an issue and the heartbreak from my perspective, having lost my father to Alzheimer's. Uh, so I know what it's like. Um, yeah. But the notion that these people put their faith in their doctors and in the pharmaceutical industry and the very drug that they're taking is causing mom, dad, husband, or wife to actually decline more quickly. We have to, you know, that's important news. So um, go to go to drperlmutter.com, read the blog I wrote about it, and the full PDF is available there in the science section, the learn section on my website. You said something profound in your new book, you know, the new grain brain that's actually got the same title, but it's a, it's a very different book than, than your first version. And you said 90% of literature peer-reviewed journals ever published about the human microbiome have been in the last five years. And that's since you published your last book. Yeah. So in addition to talking about Alzheimer's and inflammation, what, I mean, this is incredible. Uh, and I mean, my, my really big diet book was 2014. So that's four years ago. So that's 80% of this five-year period. And uh, so all of this new gut bacteria comes out. I read a lot of literature, probably not as much as you because you just read a book about it. But what really stood out as what's different now than when you first wrote the first edition of Grain Brain? Well, it's a very good question. I, I think that so many people have been so hard at it in terms of the research. You know, uh, we have some wonderful leaders in the field, uh, Dr. Rob Knight at uh, UCSD, for example, just putting out so much research that ties in uh, the actions of these gut bacteria with some really fundamental processes that underlie whether we live or die. Uh, whether we get cancer or not, whether we develop inflammation or autoimmune conditions or not. So I think for so, in so many areas of medicine where we've been stymied uh, with lack of opportunities to really be impactful, we're now learning uh, that we have a brand new playing field that can be leveraged to give us wonderful new empowering opportunities. And it is it is just beyond exciting to watch the literature uh, every day. Uh, there's a wonderful online journal called Cell Host and Microbe, actually, that is available in, in print copy if you choose, uh, that, you know, on a weekly basis is just giving you these wonderful new studies that are just incredible aha moments for those of us in the field. And for me, I like to portray it as that these uh, new studies are connecting dots for me. I mean, we got a lot of dots that have been connected, but you know, there's a couple of still couple of funny pieces to the jigsaw puzzle that we haven't really found yet. But and when you find that piece and you drop it in and it fits, oh my gosh, it really adds to continuity. You can start to see the whole picture. Let me give you an example. Uh, there's a researcher at the University of Louisville. His name is Yun Tang. And Yun Tang, again, in this journal, Cell Host and Microbe, recently published an article. It came out actually when I was in Switzerland lecturing on this exact topic a couple of months ago, and he noted or discovered that plant cells that contain their own genetic material, RNA, when we eat plants, mm -hmm. that uh, encapsulations of their RNA called microsomes or exosomes, once they leave the cell and are through digestion, that these exosomes of this genetic material travel in the gut 
bind to the cell membranes of our gut bacteria, insert themselves into the gut bacteria and make their way to the genetic material of our gut bacteria and then influence the genetic expression of the gut bacteria's genome, causing at least three, three things to happen. Number one, changes in the reproductive activity of that particular species of bacteria, number one. Number two, changing the metabolic products that that gut bacteria might make. And number three, actually changing the location of these gut bacteria, which is important when, as mentioned earlier, we need some of our good gut bacteria to cluster around, especially the clostridial species, to make their way towards the gut lining where they can be at work helping us maintain uh, the integrity of that gut lining. But <clears throat> how incredible that we, we now understand that plants, yeah, we get prebiotic fiber and that's good for our gut bacteria, but no, we are influencing the genetic expression of the gut bacteria and make no mistake about it, that connects to another dot that's really important. And that is the dot that we've already understood uh, whereby the genetic expression of our gut bacteria influences our DNA, our genome. So this now connects the uh, plants that we eat to the expression of our DNA. Wow, those are two very important dots that are now connected. And I think that, as I say, what a very important piece of the jigsaw puzzle has now been put in place. Beyond that, stay with me uh, and think about the notion then, if the, the RNA, the genetics of the plants that we eat is so important and uh, influential through the mechanism I just described, what then should our level of concern be as it relates to the notion of genetically modifying the plants that we eat? So people have said, well, there's no real evidence that genetically modified food is creating a health issue for us. And plus, it's going to allow us to feed the planet, whereas otherwise the planet would starve. <laughs> we can challenge that one uh, on multiple fronts, that notion. But, but that said, now that we understand that the genetic material of the plant does in fact influence the genetic expression of our gut bacteria that plays a role in our DNA expression, then you bet it's time to take pause as it relates to modifying the genome of plants that we eat and look at it through a new lens and in terms of the doctrine of primum non nocere, above all, do no, do no harm. Uh, very beautifully put. And there's something else that you came out with uh, in, in your new version of Grain Brain, a study that I, I talked about a lot on social media and I believe blogged about um, last year. And they looked at just about all of the fatty plaque in people have heart disease. And they found that it doesn't come from egg <laughs> yolks. It doesn't come from butter. It doesn't come from beef fat. It doesn't even come from bacon. It comes from microbes in your gut. And I actually mentioned this uh, in a in a, a friendly discussion uh, with a proponent of the, of the vegan diet. He's, he's saying, you know, meat causes heart disease. And the evidence is in gut bacteria are what's causing heart disease. Because if you eat meat and you have the, gut, the wrong gut bacteria, they make that TMAO stuff we talked about earlier. And even if you don't have that TMAO stuff, even if you eat vegetables, if you have plaque in your arteries, it was made by your gut bacteria. 
do you believe that's the case? I mean, I believe the study, it looked well done. There's, there's no way to argue with you know, the isotopes they're looking at in, in this stuff, but what's your take on that? How, how real is it? Well, I, I'm not, you know, it's not the end all cause, but I think that again, it, uh, it really speaks to this notion that the health vitality of our, um, and diversity, perhaps the most operative word here of our gut bacteria is, uh, massively important in determining our health destiny. And uh, beyond that, we understand that it isn't the, the quantity of certain fats uh, or fat carriers, the lipoproteins, that is really the issue. Uh, uh, while uh, Madison Avenue, somebody came up with the notion of calling LDL bad cholesterol. <laughs> and they get a, they get a, 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 you know, they get a great prize for that um, because everybody's latched onto that. I want to get my bad cholesterol since it's bad. It should be as low as possible. And well, there must be a good cholesterol. Oh, yes, there is. It's HDL. A, they're not cholesterol. They're proteins. B, they're both really, really good. Yes, LDL, LDL is what transports an important fat to your brain uh, called cholesterol mm -hmm. that we desperately need. Uh, you know, it's, it does a great job. When you compromise LDL, you're in big trouble. Uh, we know that uh, LDL, in terms of its uh, uh, how it's uh, modified, how it makes its way through the brain vasculature, for example, the blood vessels within the brain crossing what we call the blood-brain barrier, when LDL has been damaged, we see great relationships to mechanisms that underlie significant brain degeneration. So <laughs> let's just first by characterizing LDL as good and HDL as good, uh, and that the issue, and let's relate this back uh, to our gut bacteria for a moment, uh, that, re that becomes important is not the amount of LDL. It's good to have LDL to transport our fats, but it's the state in which we find our LDL. Is it, has it been damaged yeah. or has it not been damaged? And what do I mean by that? LDL is damaged in a couple of ways. It can be oxidized. In other words, the action of free radicals. And that certainly is influenced dramatically by the foods we eat and how the foods influence the expression of our gut bacteria. Whether we're on a ketogenic diet, for example, whether we are eating types of vegetables that enhance pathways to increase our antioxidants, like the NRF2 pathway, i.e., why we want uh, to eat broccoli and drink coffee and uh, use turmeric in our cooking, etc. Uh, but beyond that, another issue that is so influential in terms of our LDL is, has it been glycated? What does it mean? It means, has it been not just oxidized, but now has it bound itself to sugar? Glycation is a process by which proteins bind to sugar. And once they do so, they are modified and become less functional. The main issue that we need from our LDL, which is not bad cholesterol, we love, we love our LDL, it's keeping us alive. The main issue is what we're looking for is functionality. We will yeah. compromise the functionality of our LDL and therefore be in great trouble like heart disease, uh, like cerebrovascular disease, uh, strokes, etc. We compromise functionality of our LDL, which is not bad, cholesterol, when it is either oxidized by the excess activity of uh, production of free radicals in the presence of inadequate antioxidants, 
or it is glycated. Now, yeah. let's just look at not any not everybody can go and have their glycated LDL blood test done. But a terrific surrogate marker that anyone can tomorrow go to their doctors and have done that correlates almost perfectly with the level of glycated and even downstream uh, oxidation of LDL is a very simple test, a glycated hemoglobin test. Is that uh, unusual? That's the A1C that they talk about on the, on the diabetes drug commercials that you see on the evening news. Everybody knows about their A1C because, uh, you know, there are uh, the 60% of Americans now that are probably have their A1Cs checked because they are pre-diabetic or, I mean, adults, or frankly, diabetic. So everyone's familiar with A1C. What does it mean? It means glycation, in this case, sugar binding to a protein called hemoglobin. That's the oxygen-carrying, carbon dioxide-carrying molecule within our red blood cells. Uh, so that is a terrific surrogate marker for this LDL glycation and LDL oxidation or oxidatively damaged by the actions of free radicals. So the the glycated hemoglobin also tells you whether your LDL is oxidized, not just whether your LDL is glycated, because those are different types of damage pathways. Absolutely. So there's Both. a well, when things are are great point. When things are glycated, they oxidize. Two things are triggered by the glycation of proteins. Oxidation, higher levels of, of free radicals, and who knew? Inflammation. <laughs> So uh, these things all come together. Again, it's all about these dots. And, when, and you know, when you're pulling the research, writing a book or updating a, boat, a book and these things come together, you just, uh, you, just, uh, it, you just say to yourself, why that's fantastic or hashtag WTF, why that's fantastic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because it really is. And you make these connections. I got to write a book about this. People have to know that lowering inflammation in your body and lowering your blood sugar to reduce glycation of proteins is so very important. One graph uh, that I included in Grain Brain and now uh, with the new release of the revised edition, I included because it's so compelling is the relationship of A1C to brain shrinkage. Higher A1C, higher rate of brain shrinkage. It's linear. You've got to know that. And having an A1C of six, uh, when your doctor says, oh, you're not diabetic, everything's cool, go home, keep doing what you're doing, that does not jive with the, the science that's telling us that a hemoglobin A1C of A1.6 is good for you. That's BS. Uh, you need your A1C down to 5.2, uh, and that's pretty much uh, take that one to the bank. Once, how low? How low would you go if you if you could set it as low as you want it? Like you I, know, I don't want to be average. I, I want to live 180. I don't know the answer to that, but I will tell you that uh, one thing I've learned uh, over the years is that there is this notion of what we call the um, the U shaped curve, or yeah. or perhaps the sweet spot, uh, where uh, too low uh, or, or the sin. Uh, uh, Goldilocks area, right? Where mm -hmm. the once one, the porridge was too cold, the porridge was too hot, and this one's just right. So uh, we know that uh, higher A1Cs, for example, are correlated to uh, cognitive decline. But uh, you know, we've been talking for years about uh, keeping your not just your blood sugar low, but actually your insulin level low. And uh, I will note that a recent study that came out of Sweden. Uh, 
looked at, uh, was published just in May of, this is 2018. I know this will be evergreen, but published earlier this year, 2018. Uh, the study uh, also published in one of my favorite journals called Neurology, uh, looked at uh, 1,200 women uh, between the ages of mid-30s, somewhere up to age 60, uh, followed them for 34 years. And what did they find? That it did, and they only, Again, they measured one thing at the beginning of the study, and that was their fasting insulin levels. They found that those individuals with the lowest level of insulin actually had an increased risk of dementia of about 2.3-fold. Those in the middle range of insulin levels, as they defined it by definition of their study, their risk was put at one. And those in the higher ranges of insulin, as you might expect, also had a higher risk for dementia of 1.7, not as high as the very, very low levels of insulin. And so, uh, you know, the notion of have, uh, trying to keep your insulin level really, really low, I think we have to temper that. The notion of over-exercising, I think, should be looked at in terms of the U-shaped curve, the sweet spot, the amount of sleep that we get, for example, the amount of nutrients that we take and the amount of fat we consume, uh, vitamins we can overdo or underdo. So I think that the notion of the more the merrier, and I, for one, have been guilty of that personally. You know, if, it, if uh, I was told that it'd be good to do something, I always did twice that or more than that. Mm-hmm. And I know you are the same way. I, I, I've been to oh, where yeah. you're broadcasting or recording this uh, studio, leave it at that. So you are like me. Uh, we, we both have been aggressive about things. And I think understanding that there is an ideal place. Yeah. You know, so the, the question then becomes, you know, how do we zone in on that? How do we fine tune that analog dial on the FM radio to get the very best signal. You turn the, the dial to the left, you get static. Turn it to the right, you get static. You really want to fine tune. That's what biohacking is all about. That's what understanding biometrics and crunching the data uh, is all about. What's really frustrating is when uh, you see, well, here's how you score your testosterone compared to the average 46-year-old. Uh, like, well, that's uh, one of the laws and uh, game changers is average is the enemy. I don't want to be the average 46-year-old because most of us are like developing dad bod the way I had in my 20s. And you know, our muscle mass is going down, our testosterone is going down. And like, don't compare me to average. You tell me ideal, but medicine has failed us in telling us what's ideal. You're right. So I'm like, well, if this works, let me try doubling that and tripling that and then try going back and, and tuning that dial myself. But it, I feel like even some of these studies that you talk about in Grain Brain over the last five years, we're starting to understand enough that maybe we can get these numbers dialed in so I don't have to do the guesswork. So the biohackers listening, and certainly there's a lot of people listening who are not biohackers and don't go out and do all this stuff. They just want to feel good and perform well. And uh, I I think we're sort of failing them by not saying, you know, here's the number. And you did it right here, uh, Dr. Perlmutter, like, okay you want to have a number of 5.2. You don't want it to be six and you probably don't want it to be four. But that's based on very recent knowledge mm. versus uh, most of the most of the other lab metrics when you get it back. What the lab tells you is garbage for the reference range because you don't want to be normal. Normal people die. Yeah, well, uh, that's in the, the normal range. Yeah. And what is normal these days? Normal is, by definition, average. We, uh, you know, that's how they develop uh, these lab values, you take a large number of people and then they use one standard deviation on either side of the of the peak and they say that's in the normal range. And I think that's a huge disservice uh, to people who want to be optimized. 
So yeah, we can talk about a vitamin D level being in the normal range, 30 to 100, and that means that I'm okay at 31. Well, that you are not okay. You're not okay, <laughs> quite literally, in my book. You're not mm-hmm. okay in my book because I want uh, as many people that I can touch over over time to be their best, to be not only their best today in terms of their functionality, but to be their best tomorrow in terms of being resistant to the degenerative processes that are so uh, pervasive now in, in global society. So you have your opportunity to be the, your best when you begin to understand that you have to be that N of one that uh, challenges the notion of normal range of, you know, the, the medical model where uh, as, as only as much as 3% of people ever uh, data from 3% of people are extrapolated to the remaining 97%, or actually the 100%, because they're then included in that, in terms of the recommendations that are made by mainstream medicine. That is, as my dad used to say, bass backwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it raises this discussion of personalized medicine, where we want to know about Dave Asprey specifically, uh, not your wife, not your neighbor. We want to know about you. What's your pedigree? What does your microbiome look like? What do your current biometrics look like? And from that, we'll develop a program that is best for you. Now, having said that, and it's in, I gave this talk at uh, Jeff Bland's Personal Lifestyle Medicine Institute uh, conference, I guess it was two months ago, that uh, you know, that's the future. That's the best we can do. And we should extrapolate from that information back to the notion of making the broad stroke recommendations. There's great value in the broad stroke recommendations in terms of those, you know, the, the, the broader reach of the population that's not going to necessarily be able to participate in a very in-depth uh, personalized medicine approach. And those broad stroke recommendations are uh, that you've got to cut down on your simple carbohydrates. You've got to understand what is the notion of net carbohydrates. And by all means, as we talked about at the beginning of this uh, discussion, not eliminate uh, the fiber, by definition, a complex carbohydrate from your diet. That dietary fat, if you're careful about what that fat is in terms of its type, is fundamental to your health understand the discussion, Dave, that you and I had earlier with reference to meat and its quality. And beyond that, look at the things like sleep and uh, the, the, the restorative nature of sleep and uh, uh, exercise, for example, as broad stroke recommendations that we really need to engage. The, the, the main premise of Grain Brain and now with the revision has always been to appeal to the, to the larger audience. Yes, we made a few specific recommendations in terms of fasting insulin, a vitamin D level, a hemoglobin A1C, fasting blood sugar, amount of exercise to get, looking at your sleep, getting a sleep study, as it were, as one type of intervention uh, of study to understand uh, you know, who you are and, and what your risks are. But by and large, it's the broad strokes that I believe everyone can do. And you know, uh, one of the recommendations I make uh, in, in the book and again, with the revision that's coming out next week, and that is um, you do have to buy something. I am wanting you to buy something, and here's the pitch. Here's what you got to buy. Oh, and people are saying, oh, I knew that was coming. <laughs> yes, you need to go out and buy a new pair of, of sneakers. That's it. I mean, if you have to do 
one thing and buy one thing, go out and get a new pair of sneakers. It's so undervalued that our sedentarity is killing us. Uh, in, and, you know, people think, oh, I've just got to get the project finished. I've got to, uh, whatever it is. And, you know, by and large, our work is done uh, uh, by sitting and uh, in front of the computer. Uh, you and I are doing it right yep. now. Uh, this is the only time of day that I'm going to really be doing this. And I've already had my aerobic workout for the day and going to do another one in just a bit. But that said, that's that's a huge issue. And again, it's something that everybody can do. I, For me, I would say, even if it's walking uh, to the mailbox and coming back, that's a start if you didn't do that before. Uh, if, if you're in a wheelchair, you, you buy some uh, free weights and you do something. Uh, but I think everyone should be really cognizant of the fact that aerobic exercise, and now we know resistance exercise as well, is a powerful way to change the expression of your life code, of your DNA, for the better. And who wouldn't want to do that? You talk about something else in the new grain brain that wasn't a big focus in the old one. You talk about ketosis. And we've also talked about these Goldilocks zones. And uh, my uh, uh, at the beginning of this, you, you said what I think is going to be the title of the show: why why you desperately need carbohydrates? Uh, because like what? Well, you do. It, it's called great idea. It, it's called you should definitely yeah. do that with Dr. David Perlmutter. People are going to really say why that's fantastic. WTF? Go ahead. Totally. I mean, you're going to have to listen to the show and realize that, that you're you're actually correct. Like if you don't have anything to feed your gut bacteria, you're wrong. But there's definitely people. It'll cause a a, a double take for sure. But uh, and, and there's an ideal number for that stuff. And clearly, you and I are not going to be in the camp of, of high carbs ever. Uh, but also, the zero carb is maybe going too far. Um, with ketosis, uh, I, I see some of the, the, the sort of fans of, as long as it's not a carb, I'll eat it type of ketosis, uh, saying, oh, you know, I, my blood levels are two, three, four. You know, my ketones are higher than yours. I, I took these non-bioidentical exogenous ketones, and you know, look what happened. And... Uh, I've, I mean, I have a, a belief based on on the studies I've seen and all about a good number of ketones for people. But I want to know what you think after writing the new grain brain because you you've put a big more a lot more focus on keto because you're a neurologist. Because now five years after you wrote the first one, we know way more about ketones in the brain. You know there's something going on. What's the number that people? What's the max? What's the min? What's the average? Where should we be? Well, again, you know, we're, we're we we want to try to find that Goldilocks zone. Yeah. And, and I think it has to be contextual. I think we have to look at uh, not just ketones, and we'll get there in just a moment, but in the context of also your fasting blood sugar. So uh, again, we want our fasting blood sugar, as I've said before, in the 70s, in the 80s. Uh, I'm, I'm lower than that, but I'm okay with it. Um, so, uh, you know, what? It, again, these are just, you know, uh, general recommendations. And I'd like to see people getting their... Uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate as a specific ketone that is measured, uh, which does require a finger prick, uh, to be at least 0 0.5, uh, 0.7, 0.8 in that range. Hallelujah. I was going to say <laughs> 0.5 to 0.8. That's, that's yeah, all the numbers go. I've I seen. Okay. It is not one. It is not three. It is not five. You might want to spike it for something, but having it high all the time is is bad and uh okay why those ranges i, I mean the, i know there's two studies i love but you probably have more well i think that uh that's a heck of a lot of beta hydroxybutyrate uh floating around uh doing what it needs to do and to be clear the research demonstrates a absolute linear correlation between 
brain levels of beta-hydroxybutyrate uh, emulating uh, what we find in the blood. And these are, research would demonstrate that these levels of beta-hydroxybutyrate in the brain are actually very active. And, you know, this is, uh, you know, some of the research uh, that Dr. Bredesen has leveraged in terms of his recommendations, which fall into the same range as you and I just quoted, uh, w allowing people actually the ability to recover, to recover from Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, I, I take a, a big push from that. I also think that um, it is uh, achievable by the common man uh, that it is, you know, it certainly may be enhanced by adding uh, MCT oil or coconut oil to the regimen. But I think even uh, with a fairly well-defined ketogenic diet, to get that level most of the time is a good thing. I also believe that the hormesis uh, or the stress uh, metabolically uh, that is imparted by a little bit lower blood sugar from time to time and therefore a slightly higher a 1 to 1 1.5 uh, range of beta-hydroxybutyrate has got to have some uh, downstream positive effects when you stress the body that way, mimicking fasting. That brings up uh, another idea of fasting mimicking, but mimicking caloric scarcity. And I think yeah. the body goes into a really protective mode. There's no food. We've got to start changing uh, what's what genes are expressing and what genes are not expressing because we don't have access to a caloric resource here. Uh, at, at the same time, I would indicate that uh, having a higher blood sugar uh, from time to time, not higher than normal, but just letting it come up a little bit. And so cycling through this looks like, based upon really fairly recent research, to be more in line with mimicking our uh, Paleolithic environment and also allowing genes to be more adept at expressing themselves. Uh, but again, I think that uh, you bring to mind these, uh, you know, if it's, as long as it's not a carb, I'm going to eat it. You can absolutely uh, have a, a very detrimental uh, effect on your ability to get into ketosis and lower your blood sugar if you're eating lots and lots of meat, for example, or yeah. just protein in general. And I think that's such an important concept uh, through the notion that high levels of amino acids, the breakdown products of protein can be reassembled through a process in the liver called gluco sugar, neo new genesis, making new sugar is enhanced in, in that uh, scenario where you're eating, you go ahead and say, if it's meat, I'm going to eat it. And, you know, and basically again, Atkins redux, apart from the, uh, this mTOR consideration where you're activating a, a pathway that really, um, is profoundly detrimental, uh, leading to cellular death, pre-programmed death, and leading to mitochondrial failure. So, you know, maybe maybe what we're saying seems complicated, but again, uh, I think that people should, uh, you know, based on current data, and, uh, let's be clear, you know, we may, you and I may get together five years from now and say we learn uh, through current research that the world is flat. And we're going to say, uh, here, we were wrong. A world that wasn't round, it's flat. I guess I could be open to that. It'd be a, it'd be a stretch. But uh, what we understand now, and it's again, it's bolstered, as I mentioned, by two million years of, of uh, being uh, tested on the, on the racetrack, that uh, you know, a diet that doesn't have simple carbohydrates, that has lots of carbs, Perlmutter's saying, eat a lot of carbs, the title of this podcast. But these are carbs that are fiber, that are nurturing your gut bacteria, that isn't 
eating meat and eggs and cheese and milk products all day. No, that's not what we're saying. Mostly plant-based, but not entirely, if uh, if that is your and choice. And plant-based does not mean eating basically flour all the time, grains, only beans, uh, rice, uh, starch, right? So, so we're almost like mostly plants, but not plant babies. I, I, I don't know exactly how to express that to people. You're <laughs> talking about green vegetables uh, when you say mostly plants, uh, uh, not, not so much, you know, potatoes that are also plants. That's right. And we say basically above ground uh, vegetables, above ground, because these are vegetables that by and large, aside from their seeds that you, we'll get to in a moment, uh, by and large, don't store uh, carbohydrate in the form of starch. So uh, having a, a, a couple of potato, uh, not potatoes, but you know, a few pieces of potato or carrot, uh, which does grow under the ground, yeah. uh, turnips, whatever, they're not unreasonable. Um, but you know, w- we certainly want to avoid the seeds of grass uh, because the products derived therefrom are generally going to spike your blood sugar. And uh, if it's wheat, barley, or rye, and now even oats, of course, you're going to get exposed to gli- uh, gluten uh, and specifically part of it called uh, gliadin. And you know, we we um, really spoke about in Grain Brain five years ago the work of a British researcher, Marius Hajivasalu, who I think was really the pioneer uh, in terms of the notion that uh, gluten can have extra intestinal effects, meaning in effects outside of the digestive system. What a notion. Uh, and uh, so he was even very clear that neurological conditions, issues, uh, manifestations can occur in response to being sensitive to this protein called uh, gluten. And uh, that was, you know, resounded uh, the rejection of his, uh, although he published in the journal Lancet, I might add, but there was a resounding rejection of his, um, his concepts, which I felt were very, very valid. And since that time, as you well know, this notion of non-celiac gluten sensitivity has been absolutely supported globally by literature to the extent that even the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2017 published a very extensive review uh, with Harvard researchers contributing to this review. In fact, Dr. Alessio Fasano was quoted, uh, was a contributor to this study, absolutely affirming for us the notion of non-celiac gluten sensitivity, and the uh, the notion that gluten sensitivity can have significant extra-intestinal manifestations that may involve the brain. So when we talked in uh, five years ago about movement disorders, about uh, ADHD, uh, other issues with cognition, uh, headache, for example, uh, possibly, possibly being related to gluten sensitivity because science supported that, yeah, there was pushback, but now, my goodness, now it's really becoming much more accepted, and I am, um, I'm really grateful to for the degree of validation. Uh, when you, you know, I published um, a, a study uh, several years ago with a doctor Aristo Vajdani, where we demonstrated. Uh, markers in the blood uh, demonstrating gluten sensitivity without celiac disease in a patient with about 28 years of intractable headaches having to take uh, opioids to control his pain 
and going gluten-free and finally coming off opioids after, uh, you know, more than two decades. So, well, Dr. Perlmutter, this is why your work matters. And for people listening, you don't have notes in front of you. You know these studies because you write books and because you read these so you can be better in the clinic every day. Uh, And all the science is real. It's all out there. So if you're still stuck in that, you know, I've got to have my, you know, sticky white bun on my cheeseburger or something, just know it is not free. And the idea that I'm going to spend less on my food as long as it tastes good is not actually spending less because you're probably going to not like how you feel. So I just have to say thanks. Uh, Thanks for the new grain brain. Thanks for your decades of work in the field. It has made a big difference and I, I appreciate it. And if you love today's show, you should check out the new Grain Brain. And if you happen to order it on Amazon at the same time you order Game Changers, they'll be stuck together for other people. Oh, there you go. Forever. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Thanks again for being on the show. Thanks for being such a great friend and such a a big, dare I say, Game Changer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will tell you that I was very, very honored uh, not only to be uh, spoken about uh, in terms of my work in your book, but to be uh, supportive of the book in general, because um, it, it's it's a really a great resource. Because you know we must learn from others, and and you've cultivated an incredible cadre of individuals who absolutely, by definition, have been game changers and are helping moving the ball down the field. Uh, you know, challenging the status quo. Uh, Ronald Reagan uh, reminded us. Well, he didn't remind us, but he told us that the term status quo is Latin for the mess we're in. And so, uh, you know, to, to make changes uh, and, and challenge uh, the accepted, accepted dogma allows us to, uh, to make progress. So um, I appreciate the fact that you do that and everything that you do because it's, it's really, uh, is it disruptive? Yes. And that's a really, really good thing. If you like today's episode, well, I already told you what to do. Go ahead and read something good. You know the good stuff to read. <laughs> Thanks for listening. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.